welcome to Cross Defense. Woohoo! It's that time again. Every week we do this, don't we? You and I, dear listener. It's Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. And also your host here on Cross Defense. Delighted to be with you. I have in my hands my copy of your uh, Every Day of Friday, How to Be Happier Seven Days a Week by America's Pastor, <laughs> Joel Osteen. And the reason why I have this in my hand is I want to, I'm looking for a quotation in here that I can, that I can, uh, that I can use to contrast something. Because here, just here's an example of how I, I, we're going to talk about the cross today. That's what we're doing, and we're going to talk specifically about seven rules of the cross, seven things the Bible says about the Christian and what it means to bear the cross, to carry the cross. You, do you know that the first time that the cross is mentioned in the Bible, it's not the cross of Jesus that's being talked about, but rather the cross of the disciples. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross daily, it says in the Gospel of Luke, daily. So that the Christian life is a life of bearing the cross. This is the topic that old theologians used to talk to, uh, talk about. They t- talk about the topic of the cross. And whenever they talked about the cross, it wasn't about the atoning death of Jesus, although they certainly would talk about that. But whenever they talked about the cross, they were talking about the Christian life what it means to bear the cross, what it means to carry the cross, what it means to, to be a Christian under the, what, the Lord's care in this life, which is a care that looks a lot different than we're used to seeing. And I've got this great little excerpt from the, this book. It's called Preparing for Death, The Holy Art of Dying. That would not be necessarily a bestseller these days. By Martin Moeller, pastor from 1547 to 1606. And he writes these seven rules of the cross. That's what we're going to talk about. But I want to contrast it with what we oftentimes hear in the world today. Here's some Joel. I just opened to page 13 here. The key to handling adversity Joel Osteen writes, if you complain, you will remain. You'll stay right there. If you become negative and soured on life, you won't pass the test. There was promotion available. There was opportunity for new growth. But because you didn't count it all joy, you missed out. But the good news is this God will give you another opportunity. He can still take you where you need to be. For instance, when someone offends you, your attitude should be, I won't be upset. I'll count it all joy. I know this is simply a test. And on the other side of the challenge, I'll be promoted. When business is slow, instead of griping, count it joy, etc., etc. That's how you pass the test, says Joel. In the tough times, don't be surprised if you feel that spirit of heaviness trying to overtake you. Don't be surprised if you hear those thoughts telling you it'll never work out, you'll never get well, it's over, it's done. Don't believe the lies. You don't have to be guided by your emotions. They're not in charge. You're in charge. Instead of letting your negative emotions talk to you, talk to yourself. When you wake up in the morning, that negative thought comes to your mind. It's a lousy day. Don't agree and say, yeah, it's a lousy day. I feel terrible. This is Joel Osteen. Now, Joel Osteen, he is uh, the popularizer of what's called the prosperity gospel, and it is the idea that the Lord has for his people a life of prosperity. Health, for sure, health. Wealth, most likely. That that things are going to go right for you, that you're going to be, as we heard in that text, that that you're going to be promoted, that things are going to fall into place, that God has your your best life now. That's the theology that's there now. Is that what the Bible said? Jesus has the opposite to say. 
Jesus says, take up the cross and follow me. Now, this is important. Just to get this contrast at the very beginning is an is important thing, because what do you expect as a Christian? I mean, what are your expectations? We were studying over at Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church last night. We were studying the baptism of Jesus for our Bible study, and we had this 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 beautiful picture that Jesus goes to be baptized, and immediately he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, now, is that what you expect? Do you expect to be baptized and then things just go better for you? Like Jesus was going to be baptized and then like carried on people's shoulders to some sort of throne in Jerusalem and placed there? Or, or lifted out of the misery of this life and brought to something glorious? No, the opposite is what happens. Jesus is driven into the wilderness where he doesn't eat or drink for 40 days and he's tempted in every way, says the Gospel of Mark. He's tempted in every way by the devil. Luther Remember Martin Luther? He made this point. He said, he said, when you're baptized, you're marked with a target for the devil. You become his enemy. He is the one for... Uh, he, 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 you, you set yourself against him when you are baptized, and he is now after you. This is the point. That, that, that being a Christian doesn't make your life better. In fact, Jesus says, he makes these promises. He says, in this life, you will have trouble. I heard... I heard this old preacher, Ray Comfort, remember this New Zealand evangelist who I kind of like? He, he's wrong about the free will of man, but he's helpful in a lot of other ways. And he, he uses this story. It's so helpful, this illustration. He says, can you imagine that you get on the airplane and you're sitting back in the back and so there's someone sitting in, in first class and you're flying along and, and all of a sudden the airplane breaks down and it's going to crash. Well, the, the stewardess in first class comes to everyone and says, Hey, uh, take this parachute. It'll make your flight better. Hold on to this parachute. It's, it'll make it more comfortable. It'll make it an easier flight. <laughs> well, you, now you take the parachute, and you're like, ah, this is not making it easier. It's a hassle. I can't drink my mimosa. The parachute's in the way. And the plane rattles like this, and you, it jostles your coffee and your newspaper, so you stuff it under the seat in front of you. And, but there's not enough room for your feet, and, the, and as the plane starts to shake, you get more and more annoyed with the parachute. It's not making it easy. It's making it worse, and you stuff it in the bin, and then the plane crashes, and you die. But to the people in the back, the stewardess comes along and says, Hey, hold on to this parachute. The plane's going down, and it's the only thing that'll save your life. So then you hold on to the parachute, and it doesn't matter if it gets in the way. You're holding on tight, and as the plane shakes around, you, you strap that thing on, and you might be hunched over, and you might be uncomfortable, and you might look kind of funny, but you're going to be alive when the plane goes down. Now, this is what the gospel is. The gospel is not to make our lives better. In a lot of ways, following Jesus makes it tough. It makes it harder. The Lord appoints crosses for his Christians and we have to and we have to know that and we have to expect it because i think at least in my own life one of the one of the toughest things is when ex expectations are not met i'll tell you for for carrie and i this is when this is when most of the arguments ended up happening cuz there's expectations that she had that i didn't meet or expectations that i had that she didn't meet and we, and we didn't even talk about it I didn't even know about it we ended up disappointing each other because we had the wrong expectations for how the day was going to go for how the night was going to go for how the for how the trip was going to go for whatever you know for how the plans were going to go we had different expectations about this and because the expectations weren't met then then you get all rattled up well what are your expectations of jesus do you expect do you expect Jesus to make your life better, then you are going to be upset. Jesus comes to call you out of this world 
to life eternal. He comes to save you from sin, death, and the devil. And in a lot of ways, not only does he make life better, he makes life glorious, but on very different terms than what we expect. He doesn't come to give us the pro this kind of prosperity to this sort of the expectations of our belly. He comes to make us Christians and to give us life eternal. So with that in mind, I want to read this thing. Now, for, for those of you who prefer to follow along, you can find this excerpted on the old blog. You can find the blog at wolfmuller.co. And because we've got a book coming out, that gets the main billing, right? Martyr's Faith for a Messed Up World. I think next week it comes out. Start shipping. That's kind of cool. You guys have got to read that book and let me know what you think about it. Uh, but you got to click on the uh, like newest recent posts or something on there, and you'll find seven rules for the cross. This excerpt for from preparing for death, the holy art of dying, and and here it goes. Here's rule number one, the first rule of the cross, and that is the cross is planned. The cross is ordained. The cross is, in other words, not a surprise. It's what the Lord was going to do all the time. Here, here's what Moeller writes. All believers are ordained of God to be cross-bearers of Christ. St. Paul says like this, Romans eight twenty nine, For whom God did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moeller comments on this. This is really quite nice. Do you hear, my soul, that you were ordained to a cross and suffering? Not only in the womb, but even before the world was formed, in order that you might be conformed and similar to your Lord Jesus. Yes, my soul, you are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Do you not wish, then, to suffer with him? He's the Lord. You are his disciple. He is the bridegroom, and you are his bride. He is the head, and you are the member. Why would you want to have things better than he? Look on him as the Lord of the cross, and notice how all dear saints have followed him in tribulation. The Lord leads on with the greatest cross of all, and the believers follow after, and everyone can bear his yoke in joyful hope, for here they are similar to the Lord Jesus in tribulation. Therefore they shall also be conformed to him in eternal glory. See Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. The cross was, this is the first rule, the cross was preordained. If you're going to be like Jesus, then you're going to bear the cross because Jesus bore the cross. Now, I don't know of a, I don't know of a more astonishing thing to say than what the gospel says. That the God of of all the universe, the creator, the the Lord who who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, that this one is a man dying on the cross. Luther, who we mentioned earlier, remember Martin Luther? Luther says the cross alone is our theology because the cross gives us this astonishing, mysterious flabbergasting, I haven't used that word in a long time, flabbergasting, this flabbergasting truth that the Lord of the universe is dead on the cross, is dead. <laughs> and, he's, and he's not dead of no purpose. He's there for a reason. In fact, th this comes up quite often 
this basic truth that we need to often that we need to remind ourselves of and that is that if Jesus is dying to save us then the first truth is that we must need to be saved and the second truth is if Jesus is dying to save us then we are saved these are the two parts of repentance contrition and faith that we recognize that we are sinners in need of the Lord's mercy and that the Lord has had mercy on us that he's that he's given us all that we need for this life and he's done that in the cross so that if if we're gonna be like God we're gonna be crucified that's <laughs> amazing it's amazing. You know, uh, I've been running into some Muslims lately, and one of the things that the Muslims say is that even though they think that Jesus was a prophet, they say that he wasn't crucified. Because, the argument goes, crucifixion is below the dignity of a prophet. Now, that's very wrong, but it's helpful, because if crucifixion is below the dignity of a prophet, how much more is it below the dignity of God to be crucified? And yet, that's exactly what we're taught in the Scriptures. We have a crucified God. And you were preordained to be made like him. That means you were preordained for the cross. That's rule number one. Now, here's rule number two. The second rule of the cross is this. It is the Lord's will that Christians would bear the cross. Here's what Muller writes. It is the Lord Christ's will that his believers should bear his cross after him. For he says thus, take my yoke upon you, Matthew 11. That's one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. It's not burdensome. Take my yoke. But what is the yoke? It's a cross. And again, Luke 9, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Yes, my soul, Moeller says, this command does not apply to the unbelievers, but to the saints and believers. For the cross of the Lord is such a precious jewel that the Lord will not entrust it to unbelievers. Wow! <laughs> Did you hear that? The cross of the Lord is such a precious jewel that the Lord will not entrust it to unbelievers. Yes, it is such a decoration that he will not grant it to the ungodly. Behold Simon of Cyrene. What an honor it was for him to bear the cross after the Lord. What glory will be his on the last day. <laughs> so the second rule of the cross is that it's commanded. Jesus has said to you, to me, he said, take up your cross and follow me. You don't have a choice. Jesus, not only does Jesus not promise that this life is going to be one of ease, he's in fact commanded that we should take up the difficulties of being a Christian. That this Christian life, especially in this world, which is fallen, is going to be a difficult life. And so Jesus has said, take up the cross. That's rule number two. Rule number one, you're preordained for the cross. Rule number two, the cross is commanded. The third rule, that's what we'll have to talk about on the other side of the break here. The third rule is that the cross is a schoolhouse. The Lord has things to teach us on the cross and uh, through our own crosses and sufferings. And in fact, he's going to say there's three schools that we're going to be entered into when we take up our cross and follow after Jesus. That's coming up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Cross the Fence, and I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. You can find out more theology, more stuff like this. You can read this excerpt at wolfmuller.co, and stay tuned. We'll be right. This will be a short break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash careers. All right, CrossFits. Welcome back. Talk about seven. Oh, this is Pastor Brad Wolfmiller. We're talking about seven rules of bearing the cross. I'm reading out of. Oh, this is so great. This old book. This book is available for free. You can download it. You can listen to audio read by Pastor Mike McCoy. Uh, the links to that are at wolfmuller.co slash the seven rules of the cross. You don't want to just go to the website. You can search for seven rules of the cross. We talked about the first rule. How now? Okay, we're contrasting this with the common, very common, very wrong idea that the. But being a Christian makes things better. You know, that you, you're, that we want to be Christians because you, I, I've heard people say, whew, this gets me. I've heard people say, hey, you ought to try Jesus. Try Jesus. You know, like, it, like Jesus is like a new kind of deodorant. Yeah, just try it for a week and see if you smell better. You know, try Jesus for a week and see if he makes your life better. No, no, no. That is bad. That is utter, that is not the Bible. There's no trying Jesus. There was a couple of guys who came along to try Jesus, and he said, go back and bury your parents. <laughs> no one who puts their hand to the plow looks back. I mean, whew, try Jesus. But there's this idea, especially in America, Christianity, but it's, it's, it's ex, we've, we in America have exported this idea all over the world, especially in some of the more Pentecostal churches, this idea of the, the health and wealth prosperity gospel, as if being a Christian is a better life. Now, now, don't, don't get me wrong. In a lot of ways, it is because you know the Lord and he knows you and you have the promise of eternal life. But as far as things like not getting as sick or not getting as beheaded, the Christians have a much higher rate of beheading for their confession than those who are not Christian. The rate of, of Christian martyrs is 100% higher amongst Christians than non-Christians. And, and Jesus says it. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble because when you're baptized, you're marked as the enemy of the devil. So remember, Jesus tells the parable of the strong man who sits on his stuff. That's the devil. And he says when he sits, he sits there all well-armed and everything, and his goods are at peace. There's a peacefulness to the devil's kingdom. And there's a disruptiveness to the Lord's kingdom. Jesus says, you think I've come to bring peace? 
Luke chapter 12. You think I came to bring peace? And we say, well, yeah, <laughs> you're the prince of peace, etc. But Jesus says, no, I came to bring division. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and so forth and so on, that there's a division that Jesus brings in the preaching of the gospel. It's just it's the way it is. That's a sad thing, sad fact that it's the way it is, but it is the way it is. So that the Christian is called to a life of suffering, and we call it the cross, that we take up the cross. And we've talked about how the first rule of the cross, it's ordained. The second rule of the cross is that Jesus has commanded it. And now we get to the third rule of the cross, that the cross is a schoolhouse. And I'm reading by this this Martin Moeller book. It's really great. Here's what he says. I'll read to you. The Lord Christ has three schools of the cross. The first school is a chastening school when he afflicts his own on account of their sin. The second school is a testing school when he exercises their faith, hope, and prayer. The third school is a martyr school when he permits them to be persecuted and killed for his name's sake. So you got the chastening school. That's where the Lord gets after us because of our sin. You have the testing school. That's where the Lord exercises our faith and our hope and our prayer. I'd add our love, too. And then there's the third school, a martyr school, where the Lord permits us to be persecuted, killed for his name's sake. Uh, we're like sheep or, or led astray. We're we killed all day long for your name. That's, that's Romans chapter 8, verse 36. Moeller continues, Here, my soul, you are also a disciple and student of your Lord. Therefore, you can be sure that he will lead you daily in one of these schools. If he chastises you on account of your sins, as he did with dear David, then thank him for his chastening and say, it's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Psalm 119, verse 71. Now, I don't want to get too too distracted by this, but this Psalm 119 is where our friend Luther, remember Luther? <laughs> oh, I wonder how many times I'll say that this show. Our friend Luther was reading Psalm 119, and that's where he figured out what it means to be a theologian. you got the three things. You have prayer, and you have meditation on God's word, and then you have suffering, tentatio, anfrechtung. You got the, you got this, uh, you got this big burden of, uh, 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 of, of, of affliction and of cross and of temptation and all of this sort of stuff. That's that's what comes uh, from Psalm 119. And this uh, verse, Moeller is quoting that Psalm 119. He says, "Look, it's good for me to be afflicted, that I might learn." that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119, verse 71. Second, if he puts you to test and leads you in, in a wonderful way, as he did with dear Joseph and Job, then remember that he is exercising your faith, arousing your hope, and urging you to prayer. And then the third lesson, if he does you the honor that you should, be, that you should suffer persecution or death for his name's sake, then rejoice in your heart that you are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, Acts 5.41. So if the Lord puts you in the chastening school, thank him that he's teaching you what your sin is. If he puts you in the faith, hope, and prayer school, then thank him that he's exercising your faith and your hope. And if he puts you in the martyr school, thank him for being counted worthy to suffer for his name. It's a wild thing to think about. But that's exactly what happened. That's the Acts 5.41. Remember Peter and those guys were preaching? 
And the Sanhedrin dragged him in there, and they said, hey, stop, stop all this preaching about Jesus. And they said, sorry, guys, can't, can't do it, cannot comply. We, we believe in Jesus. He is our king and not you. You can tell us to do anything else that lines up with God's commandment, but, but pre stop preaching the name of Jesus. We will not do. And so they beat them up. I don't know. With, maybe they whipped them 39 times with the lash or... I don't know, maybe they just pummeled them. Who knows what they did. And the apostles left the court. They left the Sanhedrin, it says, rejoicing for having been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's an astonishing text, Acts 541. I mean, we normally think, whenever we suffer, we normally think, man... If I'm suffering, it must mean I've done something wrong. It must mean I'm not worthy of the Lord's blessings. It must mean I'm far from the Lord's kingdom. But that's not the case. There's a, there's a way that the Christian looks at suffering as a true gift. And we thank the Lord for counting us worthy to suffer. Now, I don't understand this. I mean, how can I understand it? What am I, like, 40 years old? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what this means, but, but the old saints have learned it. That there's a true gift that comes to suffering. And that our suffering indicates that the Lord has counted us worthy of this gift. I, I, I want you to think about that. I mean, maybe just ask yourself this question. I, I'm going to ask myself this question. Do we truly understand our sufferings, our crosses, as gifts from the Lord Jesus? Well, that has to do with the, with the fourth rule of the cross. We're talking about the seven rules of the cross here, and you're listening. If you're just tuning in, you're, this is cross defense. We're talking about how we like to suffer. <laughs> hey, why did you talk about that, Pastor Wolfman? That'll be a good one. Well, here, this is great stuff because it's. I mean, we because we do suffer, and this is the problem, right? I mean, we're suffering in this life. And the devil comes along, and it's not even the suffering that's, that's bad. It's that the devil comes along and tries to convince us that our suffering is the result of, I don't, I don't know, it's, it's the result of God's anger, it's the result of God's negligence, it's the result there's no God or whatever. You know, we, always, we even talk about the problem of suffering. That's what happened to Job. Here Job is, oh man, he's just in the rags, sitting on the ashes, scraping his sores with shards of pottery. Yuck. And he's suffering, but then the worst part is his friends come along and they start preaching the meaning of his suffering. Your suffering must mean that God hates you or that God despises you or that God has forgotten you or whatever. But here here we come to the fourth rule, and we're listening to Pastor Martin Moeller preach the seven rules about the cross. He says, the, the cross is a sign of love. Moeller writes, the cross of the believers is a sign, not of the wrath but of the love of God. For the Lord says, quote, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Revelation 3.19 And again, the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful. John 16.20 Likewise, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. 1 Peter 4 And again, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name, Jeremiah twenty five twenty nine. 
Do you hear that, my soul? Yes, dear soul. Whoever loves his child makes use of the rod. For where is a father who does not chastise his son? But if you are without chastisement, of which all children of God have tasted, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. Hebrews 12, 6-8 Behold your Lord Jesus, the only Son of God. How severe his father was to him. How he bruised him on account of the sins that were not his own. Isaiah 53 Now this is a, this is a preaching that goes all the way back. All the church fathers and all the faithful Lutheran fathers have it as well. And it's profound to meditate on. And it is this, that the sufferings that we suffer as a Christian are not indications of God's neglect or his anger, but rather indications of his love. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. So if you are suffering that chastening, then you can rejoice in his love. Now, how hard is this in the midst of temptations? I mean, this is why we have the whole book of Job, this long, epic poem, wrestling through this sort of thing, because Job was supposed to know the love of God. In fact, how did Job know the love of God? It was from the preaching of the altar. Job would go and make a sacrifice for his children. Remember, maybe they sinned, and so we want to know that they're forgiven, that the Lord thinks kindly of them, so he offered the sacrifice and so forth. That Job has to listen to the sacrifice, and now it's the question. These are the competing questions that Job is trying to wrestle with. How do I know how God how do I know how God thinks of me? Do I know how he thinks of me because of the sacrifice, or do I know how he thinks of me because of my circumstances? The sacrifice tells me that the Lord forgives my sins. My circumstance tells me that God hates me and has cast me off. So what am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the circumstances or am I going to believe the sacrifice? Now the same thing happens for us. We're tempted to say, what, what, what are we going to believe? Are we going to believe that we can figure out what God thinks about us by the circumstances of our lives? Or are we going to figure that we can figure out what God thinks about us by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? And what's it going to be? Do you see how often the devil puts that in front of us? He, he wants to preach the circumstances. If things are good, oh, yeah, God loves you, and you must be a good person. If things are bad, oh, God must hate you. He must be forsaking you, must casting you off, or whatever it is. Who knows? The devil wants to preach the circumstances rather than the cross. But the cross is what stands as the testimony, as the sure and unwavering testimony of the love of God for you. So you wonder, dear friend, dear listener, you're sitting there and you're wondering, I wonder if God loves me. And you're looking around, and maybe things are great. You're driving 100 miles an hour down the highway in a Tesla or whatever. You're top of the world. Bank account's full. Belly's full. You don't even know why you're listening to KFUO radio, because it should be country music. You know, things are great. You go, oh, God must love me, because things are great. But in a minute, blam, it's all, now you're on the side of the road, and things are broken down, and the people that you thought loved you have despised you and they're turning away from you. And so now you think, well, God must hate me. Now, look at We are not circumstantialists. We, are not, we do not determine what God thinks of us by looking around. That's what the devil wants. He wants a bunch of look-aroundists. Look around. Look at that cancer. God must hate you. Look at that poverty. God must hate you. Look at that suffering. God must not even exist. Look around, look around, look around. But we fix our eyes on the cross, and we see there that God does love us. It's a trick, really, that, that the devil wants to do, because, because there's oftentimes that we can't determine if, if God and the devil are working against each other or, 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 or together. 
I mean, how is Job supposed to answer that question? I mean, how would you even answer the question? And you know the backstory. You know that the devil went to went to God and asked for Job. So you say, well, why why did Job's kids die? Was it God or the devil? Or why did Job get sores on his body? Was it God or the devil? And in some ways, the answer to that question is, well, yeah, it's both. God and the devil were working together in the affliction of Job. But it's on the cross, it's on the cross that we see once for all the Lord working against the devil. Fighting against him, destroying him, overcoming him, demolishing him, triumphing over him. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Or for this reason the Son of God became flesh and blood, so that through his death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That is Hebrews 2.14. It's beautiful. And if you think that the devil still is roaming uh, around untouched, unhindered by the cross, unaffected by the life of Jesus, if you think the devil is in charge and is the king of the world, then you got to go back and read Hebrews 2 again. Jesus took upon himself flesh and blood so that he might destroy the devil. But it is precisely in his death that the devil is destroyed. So if you want to know if God loves you, you don't look to the circumstances of your life, to the ups and the downs, the good days or the bad days, the richer or poorer, in sickness and in health kind of stuff. You look to the cross, and there stands the answer. There hangs the answer. God loves you. And you can't undo it. I mean, you can make a time machine, go back, pry Jesus off the cross, give him those things to make his heart stop beating again and to pin him in a cage and keep him from going to the cross. That's how you got you're gonna do that to undo the love of God. You can't undo it. God you cannot undo God's love for you. It stands. And that means that if the Lord Jesus is giving us something else, he's giving us something out of his love, including the cross, including chastening. It's a gift from the one who loves you. It's like, I don't think this is a the, the best example, but it's, it's like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if Brussels sprouts, if I, if I was trying to figure out if my mom loved me or not by the food that she gave me, <laughs> and I'd see the Brussels sprouts and say, you must hate me, but I know, I know already that my mom loves me. And so I know that this gift of Brussels sprouts comes from the one who loves me. This is the key, by the way, to Thanksgiving. You know, we, it's a difference between gratitude and Thanksgiving. But gratitude sees the goodness in the gift, but Thanksgiving sees the goodness in the giver. And we see the goodness in the giver, even of crosses. So that the Lord hands us over to all this misery and we say, well, I know that you are good. I know that you love me. I know that you care for me. I know that you want the best for me. I know that you consider me to, to be your child. I know you delight me in me, that you've, you've engraved me in the palm of your hands, that you smile upon me, that you've given your only begotten son so that how can you not also give us all things together with him, that you, this is how God is towards us. We know that, and so we know that the Lord, that every gift, everything that comes from God, is a gift of his love. So that's the fourth rule of the cross. The cross is not a sign of God's wrath, but rather a sign of God's love. Here's the fifth rule. I'll give it to you, and then we'll talk about what it means. This is an intriguing one. We'll talk about what it means after the break. Rule number five of the cross, the greater the distress, 
the closer is God. Whew. Rule number five, the greater the distress, the closer is God. Let's talk about that on the other side of the break. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and you are listening to Cross Defense. We're cruising along, talking about seven rules of the cross in this Christian life of suffering. Stay tuned. It'll be a short break, and we'll be right back to talk about rule number five. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for... Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. This week on Issues Etc., we'll get an introduction to the book of Mark with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We'll continue our series on Lutheran Catechesis, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about the Holy Spirit's ministry of love. And we'll discuss a new study on rising college graduation rates and declining academic standards with Joy Pullman of The Federalist. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Millions of Bibles are published each year for children in all sizes, shapes, and colors, and in a variety of translations. But perhaps none more interesting than the hieroglyphic Bibles of the 18th century, popular both in America and in Great Britain. The Bibles used interspersed images to represent words and ideas to make memorization and engagement with the Bible more appealing to children. Full-text versions printed at the bottom of the page assured that the images were understandable. Often they included information on important figures in the Bible. Displayed on the History of the Bible floor at Museum of the Bible, these hieroglyphic texts are examples of yet another innovative way to engage with the Bible over the centuries. Engage with this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Steph Lutheran Churches in Austin. We're talking about the cross, the Christian bearing the cross, suffering in this life, because that's what Jesus said, take up the cross and follow me. And we're talking about these seven rules. If you're just joining us, we've talked about the first one, two, three, four Oh, we've got three to cover in this last, and the last segment is always tricky short. Let's see what we can do here. The first rule was the cross is appointed for us. It's ordained for us. The second rule is that Jesus commands us to take up the cross. The third rule is the cross is a schoolhouse, both of chastening, of faith, hope, and, and prayer, and also of martyrdom. The fourth rule is that the cross is a sign of God's love, not a sign of his wrath. And now we get to the fifth rule of the cross. For those of you who are suffering, which is all of you, this is going to be very comforting. The greater the distress, the closer God is. This is what Mueller writes, Mueller. The greater the distress, the closer God is. For the Lord says, I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Psalm 91, verse 15. O oh, my soul, Mueller writes, 
how hard it is for flesh and blood to believe this. When tribulation comes, we always think that God has forgotten us, that God has given up to the given us up to the devil and all misfortune. No, my soul, although Satan is your worst enemy and is bent on your misfortune by day and by night, he cannot hurt a single head on your hair without a single head on your hair a single hair on your head. How about that? He cannot hurt a single hair on your head without the Lord's will. Matthew ten thirty. Yes, dear soul, how can God forget us? How can he lie who is himself truth? And although he may hide himself for a brief moment, he will again gather thee with great mercy. Isaiah 49, verse 15. Under the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. Psalm 112, verse 4. Or this one, one of my favorites. Romans eight thirty one. If God is for me, who can against me? Who can be against me? What can I lose if I still have my God? I will be with you in affliction and in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. That's the promise. Oh, that's a great, it's a great promise. Now, do you see how this stands against, as Mueller pointed out, it stands against the understanding of our flesh. We, we, we think that if we're suffering, then God must be far from us. He must have abandoned us. He must have left us. That was the mockery, imagine it. That was the mockery that Jesus faced on the cross. Remember how it was? I, I, and I wonder about this because Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame of the cross. And, and I don't wonder what, if the most shameful thing of the cross was was when the priests who were walking by were abusing the Lord. They were abusing Jesus for his faith. They said, he trusted in God. Where is he? he? If God is his God, let him come and deliver him. God's forsaken him. Look at him there, hanging on the cross. Lifted up from the earth. Stand, hanging between heaven and earth. Abandoned by his followers. No one to support him. Weak, bleeding, and dying. Look, God must be far from him. I like this idea of picturing, of imagining yourself just being a stranger and you're, say, I don't know, you're on a bus tour or something. You go to visit Jerusalem on the day that Jesus was crucified, Good Friday. And you don't know what's going on, so you just rock up to the place and you're going to walk around and you, you, and you come to this big crowd and you go and you look on and you say, what's happening over here? And you see there's these two guys, one sitting and one standing. One sitting there and he's dressed in royal robes, he's got this roman crown on he's the ruler all the people of the town are are giving homage to him as the one who's in charge he's got a his wife is there his beautiful wife coming from their beautiful kind of mansion and he's in charge of all this soldiers and he's got everything he's got food and wine and and all the pleasures of this life he's got wealth he's got power he's got influence pontius pilate is his name and in front of him is this this beat-up, rugged-looking character, bleeding already with a crown of thorns on and a purple robe, ratty robe, wrapped around his whipped back. He could barely open his swollen eyes, and there's 
spit dripping off the parts of the beard that's still left in his face. And the soldiers are hitting him with a stick and they're mocking him. Who hit you? And everybody, everybody is against him. The whole crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You see some guys who you learn later were his followers, and they are running away. And so he goes to be to be hang, to to be executed as a criminal. Now you see these two men standing there. In fact, the pilot, the one, says of Jesus, "Behold the man." And as you're watching the strange thing unfold, you say, "What a unfortunate day to visit Jerusalem." And as you're watching this thing unfold, you there, the stranger, someone comes up and says, "Okay, you got to follow one of these guys. You got to be like one of them." That guy there, that pilot, you can be his disciple, or that guy there, Jesus, you can be his disciple. you got to choose. Now, which would you choose? Does, does not our flesh think that Pilate has his best life now, and Jesus is completely forsaken by God? Do you see how we rail against the cross, and yet we ought to know better? We, we follow Jesus. We have a Lord who was crucified. This is how it is for us. We should not... Fifth rule of the cross, the, the greater the distress, the closer God. Okay, we've got to keep moving here. Here's the sixth rule of the cross. The cross is for our good. Mueller writes, The cross of the children of God always serves for their good and never for their harm. St. Paul says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8.28 And again, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's an interesting text to use at this point. That's Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Yes, my soul, the cross works for our good in different ways. And here's going to be a list. This is a kind of a nice... Man, this blog post, by the way, it's at wolfmuller.co. you got to look for the... I just dropped it. you got to look for the, the thing there. It's cross, seven rules of the cross on the sidebar or something. Here's a list of the, of the ways that the cross is good for us. Number one, it teaches us to recognize sin. As it's written, I will correct you in the measure and not leave you altogether unpunished, Jeremiah 30. It drives us to the word. It's written, it shall be a vexation only to understand the word, Isaiah 28. It awakens our faith, as it's written, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, 2 Corinthians 1. It teaches us also to pray rightly, for it's written, Lord, in trouble have they visited thee, they poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them, Isaiah 26. The cross teaches us to shun sin, as it's written, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you, John 5. It makes us weary of this life and awakens in us a longing for the eternal life. As it's written, here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Hebrews 13, 14. Oh, glorious. Do you see that? So the cross is working our good, and it's teaching us all these things. I mean, what would we know? What would, how would we know to pray except for the trouble of this life? How would we know to hope in God except for the trouble of life? And how would we learn to long for the kingdom of God and for the resurrection of the body and the life to come if not for this life? 
I know as a pastor, when I meet people who are kind of young and in the fullness of life, they love this world. But when you get older, when you really are bearing the cross for all these long years, now you say, Pastor, I'm ready. That's a mark of a hundred-year-old person, by the way. What am I doing here? <laughs> this is how. This is what people ask as they get older. When you're ninety, I wonder if I'll make a hundred. When you're a hundred, you say, "Why did I make a <laughs> hundred? I'm ready to go and be with the Lord. I'm ready for the life to come. I'm ready for the glory. I'm t- the, the 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 weariness of the cross in this life makes us ready for the joy and the rest of the life to come. So the cross is not for evil." But for good. Remember how remember how Joseph says it of his brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good, and God always means it for good. Now, now there is a caution here. I want to caution you all. Because there's a danger, right, when we are suffering, that someone comes along and says, Oh, hey, God means it for good. You know, God means the best out of it. God has a purpose for it. Oh, okay. It's true enough, but sometimes you don't want to hear it. Like, well, I wish that I, I just I just want to hurt for a little bit. In fact, it's sometimes I think the best thing that Job's friends did was they came and they sat in silence for a week. And that was good. They just sat there. Now you're hurting, and, and I'm hurting with you. That's how that goes. But then they get into this business of trying to comfort them with their bad theology. Yeesh. So it's true that all things work together for good, but it's not true that it's always right the right time to say that. But as we're meditating on these crosses, it's good to, for us to know that the Lord is teaching us to recognize sin, to, to drive us to the Word, to awaken our faith, to teach us to pray, to teach us to shun sin, to make us weary of this life. All these things the Lord teaches us through His cross. It's fantastic. And here's the seventh rule. I wonder how much time we got. Not that much. Here's the seventh rule. It is never too severe. Mueller writes, Patience, prayer, and hope permit no cross to become too severe. The prophet Jeremiah says, It's good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations 3. David says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Psalm 50, verse 15. Sirach says, how interesting this old Lutheran guy is quoting Sirach in Ecclesiasticus 2. Sirach says, look at the generations of old and see, did ever any trust in the Lord and was confounded? Yes, my soul, if a person must bear the burden or load and only takes hold of it properly, then it will not seem half as heavy to him, especially when he has health and relief. Thus patience, prayer, and hope are like hands or arms in order that the believing heart may grasp its tribulation and proceed well with it. For patience does everything gladly, and the result is that it's not too severe. Prayer forces itself upon God and surely receives either deliverance or relief. And hope does not ashamed us, Romans 5, but knows of a certainty that God is faithful and will permit no one to be tempted either too much or too severely, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Impatience, however, angers God and makes everything more difficult. Take the example of your Lord Jesus and learn all of these things from him. Look, to hi- look also to dear Job and learn to say in your troubles, Though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job thirteen fifteen. So that patience, this is great. This is like a little 
hot tip for handling persecution. Patience, prayer, and hope mean that the cross doesn't become too severe. It's almost like it's almost like we're carrying we're carrying this tribulation and the, and we can't endure the weight and so what do we need to help carry it with us? We need someone else to come along and so patience comes along and they say I'll help you. And then and then prayer comes along and they say I'll also help you. And then hope comes along and says I'll help you as well. And so the four of us are carrying these trouble, troubles all along. Patience, prayer, and hope. These make it so that the cross doesn't get too heavy. Well, there you go. Seven rules for the cross. I hope you find it helpful. If you want to read it and dig into it more, if you want to use it for a Bible study, you'll find it at wolfmuller.co. The first rule is that the cross was ordained. The second rule is that the cross is commanded. The third rule is that the cross is a schoolhouse. The fourth rule, i got to go remind myself, what's the fourth one? The fourth rule is that the cross is a sign not of God's wrath, but rather of his love. The fifth rule, the greater the distress, the closer God. The sixth rule, the cross is for our good. And the seventh rule, patience, prayer, and hope do not permit the cross from becoming too severe. And the reason the cross is not too severe is because of the cross of Jesus. I mean, I don't know how we could suffer all the things that we suffer in this life if we didn't have confidence that our Lord suffered. And not only... Not only does Jesus suffer with us, but Jesus suffered first for us, that he would forgive our sins and win for us a place in the eternal kingdom of God. God be praised for the cross. Hey, this is Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Thanks for listening. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.